This is episode 10 of the Graph Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Fairholm. As we did in the last episode talking about Jordan Spieth's career, we have another deep dive for you today, this one being about the ocean course at Kiowa Island, which is the host for this week's PGA Championship. If you're wondering, well, how interesting can a golf course be? I think you may come away surprised because Kiowa has some wild, dare we say, bizarre history. The following topics will be touched on. One, a hurricane. Two, shooting snakes with a gun. Three, an EPA controversy. Four, cheating accusations. Five, a limo accident. And finally, six, a spike mark that forever changed golf history. There is no golf course quite like it anywhere in the world, and that's in more ways than one. So I I hope you enjoy this episode explaining the many intricacies of one of the most fascinating places in golf. Before we start, just a reminder that if you have any questions for the Graph Podcast, you can DM us on Instagram or send an email to club at graph.golf. We'd love to hear any of the topics that you'd like us to cover, or if you have any questions about your game, please send them along. And now, without further ado, our look into the weird history of the ocean course at Kiowa Island. My one lasting memory of the 2012 PGA Championship is of a bus. A nice bus with AC and Wi-Fi, but still a bus, slowly creeping down a two-lane road, following an endless line of cars. It all started when, a few months before my senior year of college, I received an email from the PGA of America, the organization that runs the PGA Championship. They were looking for a few tech-savvy college kids to join them as social media ambassadors. Yes, that was a real term back in the day that added some gravitas to it. A reminder that this was still in the, uh, I would say, early stages of Twitter, and having a team of volunteers go around and tweet about a golf tournament is definitely no longer really needed. But at the time, our only mission was to find anything interesting and attempt to stir conversation about the event. The only real rule was that we couldn't take video or photos of the competition itself, but everything else was fair game. Out of the eight of us participating, the one with the most followers at the end of the week was promised a free round of golf at this vaunted ocean course, but it got a little out of hand. Uh, one of the kids clearly paid for followers because he soared over 50,000 by the time the tournament had even started. The rest of us were in a frenzy following other accounts so that they would follow us back. You know, the whole deal back in the early days of Twitter. Alas, nobody won that free round of golf, uh, at least to my knowledge, but I did come across a pretty cool consolation prize. I struck up a friendship with someone who randomly messaged me on Twitter, and nine years later, we're best friends. From Tuesday through Sunday of that week, I trudged to every inch of the property, taking photos and pushing through updates. The ocean course at Kiowa Island is about a 26-mile drive from downtown Charleston, South Carolina, and for obvious reasons we'll get to shortly, housing is pretty limited. There are no houses on the course, although there are some on the island a little bit further removed. That means that the bulk of media, spectators, volunteers, everyone has to stay in Charleston. There's just one road onto the island, and the trips each way took in the neighborhood of an hour and a half to over two hours. Sitting on that bus, as I did for over 24 hours of my life that week, the thought came into my mind more than once. Who the hell would build a golf course this remote and this difficult to get to? The Ocean Course debuted in 1991 as a brutally penalizing venue. 
the type of golf course that the vast majority of amateurs have no business playing. If you can describe it in two words, they would have to be one, uncomfortable, and how the course can stretch to a ridiculous 7,876 yards with howling seaside winds and daunting hazards looming everywhere. And two, pressure, for the visual intimidation and menacing situations the course puts every player into on every single hole. Those two words could definitely apply to how the course was built as well. As you might be guessing, it got extremely complicated. The whole of Kiowa Island had originally been purchased by Kuwait Investment Company in 1974 before being sold in 1988 to the Kiowa Resort Association, who then sold the pre-existing golf courses that were already on the island and the land that would become the ocean course. The buyer of those courses, including what would be the ocean course, was called Landmark Land Company, and, and this is important because Landmark had a deal in place with the PGA of America, who, in addition to operating the PGA Championship, also operates the Ryder Cup, a now famous biannual match between the U.S. and Europe. And Landmark had a deal that the match would be played at PGA West, which is a course that Landmark owned out in California. However, the players hated PGA West pretty unanimously. After having the Bob Hope Classic there in 1987, players circulated a petition for the course to never host the event again. In 1989, Landmark announced that they changed their minds about hosting the Ryder Cup at PGA West and would instead host it at a yet-to-be-built ocean course on Kiowa Island. This massive sporting event, which would have over 700 media members and be broadcast on TV to over 2 billion people worldwide, did not have a home. In fact, eight and a half months before the tournament, U.S. Ryder Cup captain Dave Stockton went out to the site and saw nothing but dirt and a makeshift clubhouse. The construction, which was led by famous architect Pete Dye, was already under a tight timeline with the 1991 Ryder Cup approaching, but... It was further delayed due to Hurricane Hugo in 1989, which violently struck the Charleston area while, ironically, the 1989 Ryder Cup was being played hundreds of miles away over in the UK. Three months' worth of prep work was undone. Fallen trees had completely blocked the only road to the island, meaning that the one way on and off was by boat. The hurricane had also moved a lot of wildlife throughout the course and some serious environmental questions that would have to be answered in today's world went unanswered at the time. Here's a passage from Kurt Sampson's book, The War by the Shore. With no one telling him not to, Dye created his own dunes and lagoons, pushed and dug the silty sand the way he saw fit, and devised an ingenious system of underground basins that caught and recirculated the chemicals used on the course, thus preventing any wetland contamination. Dye's right-hand man, Jason McCoy, came up with a way to restore vegetation to the diluted dunes by injecting water and fertilizer directly into the mounds of sand, meaning that sea oats and beach grass were successfully transplanted in mass for the first time. It wasn't that Dye was a poor steward of the environment, and the weeks of working at night were not necessarily an indication of skullduggery. He was just a man on a mission with a very big clock ticking, an input from well-meaning bureaucrats would have only slowed him down. Now, when, when you hear that passage and you're actually standing on the ocean course at Kiwa Island, it's difficult to describe to someone who hasn't been there just how impressive it is to be standing on this 
narrow swath of land pressed right up against the Atlantic Ocean and picture how someone actually made this golf course. With so much wildlife disturbed during the building process, McCoy would carry a gun with him to fend off the many snakes swarming the property. I'm not really sure a gun is the best defense against a snake, but he made it through the construction, so apparently it worked well enough. Pete Dye had to deal with 11 governmental agencies to get permits to build on the land in the first place. His work didn't go completely unchecked, but even when it did, Dye got his way. For instance, there was an old logging dam on the marshland where Dye wanted to build one of the holes, and when someone raised a concern that he shouldn't tear down the logging dam, Dye told the defender of marshland that he wouldn't use 100 acres of the marshland purchased in exchange for the 10 acres that he wanted. 10 acres which happened to include the logging dam. The dam went down by bulldozer and the course construction continued. Alice Dye, Pete's wife and the force behind the island green at TPC Sawgrass, noticed during construction that the course sat too low for players to be able to view the ocean while they played. So it was decided that the fairways would be raised up six feet further exposing the course to the wind. The course was just barely built in time for the 91 Ryder Cup, the players having to stay in trailers rather than what they are used to, which is getting their own locker rooms and a beautiful clubhouse. Everything about the ocean course was almost surreal. It was extremely difficult with the best players in the world showing up for practice rounds and failing to break 80. For context, the current course rating at the ocean course is 79.1, the hardest in the country. And basically what that means is that a good round for a scratch golfer would be just barely breaking 80. There is rough on the course now in 2021, but in the beginning, wayward tee shots found thick vegetation sitting on top of heavy beach sand and lost balls were exceedingly common given that there was no rough in between the fairways and the scruffy outer rim. The par 3 17th hole is some 220 yards over water to a small target that features bunkers and dunes to the left. That hole is usually right back into the wind, which brings me to a major point about this golf course, maybe the biggest factor of all while you watch this week at the PGA Championship. Nine of the holes run in one direction, and the other nine run in the complete opposite direction. Specifically, numbers 1 through 4 head east, numbers 5 through 13 run west, and then the final five holes go back east. It's very common for the start of the round to be back into the wind, forcing players into a difficult start, and then offering a reprieve where birdies can be made on the downwind portion before a harrowing finishing stretch back into the wind. The course was made that way mostly because there just wasn't a ton of room to do anything else. Although it looks like a Lynx course you would see in Scotland, the grass around the greens is called paspalum, a, a sticky oceanside grass that doesn't really allow the ball to be run up onto the greens. In other words, the ball pretty much has to stay in the air the entire time, which is, uh, you know, where the wind is. The following is a quote from Mark Kalkovecchia, a U.S. player on the Ryder Cup team who recently talked about seeing Kiowa for the first time during an interview on the No Laying Up podcast. Quote, the first time I saw Kiowa, I thought the PG of America was trying to pull a joke on us. There weren't any roads. There weren't any cart paths or a clubhouse. To get out there, you had to drive down a sandy road through the bushes. This was six months before the Ryder Cup, and I thought, there is no possible way they could have a Ryder Cup here. Others described the course as something that would be built on Mars, and I, I can definitely attest to this. Walking around the ocean course is, to say the least, a chore. Although the site is relatively flat, it just feels like you have sand in your sneakers 20 minutes after stepping on property. 
I've lived in Florida my entire life, but Kiowa is a top five warmest, most uncomfortable place I've ever been to. There are really few trees on property, so when you stand up on a tee box, often your aiming point is a water tower several miles away, or you're just picking out a cloud on the horizon. That also means very little shade and the sun reflecting off the sand. It truly was not built with the fan experience in mind, that's for sure, but boy does it look beautiful on TV. That's the story of the golf course itself, a long, punishing, windy layout with plenty of bunkers and water hazards to make it even harder, but the course is legendary for another reason. No, it wasn't when Rory McIlroy won the 2012 PGA Championship by eight strokes, although that certainly added to the course's resume. It was that 1991 Ryder Cup, a match that changed the course of golf history. Even the name caused tension. The 1991 Ryder Cup had the framework to be an explosive spectacle before a single shot was hit. It had been eight years since the last American victory, a fact that helped establish a newfound underdog mentality for a team that long viewed the event as an automatic win, something they were just supposed to win. That passion was only heightened by a time of beaming patriotism, as the United States was just seven months removed from the Gulf War, its first decisive military victory since World War II. Several American players showed up to their first match with camouflage hats, while the opening ceremony was focused almost entirely on honoring the home country's military. A few days before the competition, U.S. player Payne Stewart had opened the windows to the Americans' condo on the island, which was directly above the Europeans, and blasted Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA as loud as the volume could go. If that was the competition's soundtrack, the name married it nicely. At the Wednesday gala prior to play, the PG of America presented a video of solely American golf highlights set against a red, white, and blue backdrop in the style of a video made to recruit soldiers. Its title caught everyone's attention. The War by the Shore. The Americans were fired up to wave the flag. The Europeans were not as impressed with the rowdy arena their foes had enabled. A once-friendly competition had the feeling of a true battle, one being waged just 11 miles as the crow flies from where the first shot of the Civil War was fired at Fort Sumter, South Carolina. Said Captain Stockton, quote, It was the Gulf War year, and there was a lot of American pride, and I wanted to feed on that American pride. I wanted people to be proud of America and what we stand for. Some of the people took it the wrong way. That fed an intensity the Ryder Cup had never witnessed to that point. Not only were all three days of competition televised live for the first time, but the crowds on site became far more, let's say, involved than in past editions. A local radio station got a hold of the European team's phone numbers at their condo and and pestered the players with middle-of-the-night calls. Poor shots by the visiting squad were cheered ferociously, and there were several accusations that wayward t-balls by the Americans were being thrown back into play by the swarming galleries. More on that later. European player Bernhard Longer compared it to playing a soccer match in the unkindest of confines. More than any other Ryder Cup in history, the 1991 version was supercharged pandemonium. With the competition laced with controversy and blown sideways by blustery winds on a grueling Pete Dye golf course, 
the outcome was decided in the final match on the final green, all coming down to a six-foot putt nobody wanted to hit. The unchecked chaos came in all forms, on and off the course. U.S. player Steve Pate suffered a hip injury during a limo crash two days prior to the first round. That crash, which came as multiple limos bumped into each of each other on their way to the gala, would be a haunting source of controversy throughout the weekend. The Americans saw it as Pate, one of their best players, not being able to compete, a huge loss. The Europeans saw it as trickery, and here's why. Pate only played once the first two days of the event and lost, but when Captain Stockton decided to sit an injured Pate for the Sunday singles, they had taken keen advantage of the rules. By the pre-tournament captain's agreement, Pate's withdrawal meant both teams would earn a half point, and there would only be 11 singles matches instead of 12 to play on the final day. Pate had been scheduled to play Europe's Seve Ballesteros, the best player on the team. While struggling Wayne Levy, the only other American who failed to register a point, was set up to go against Europe's David Guilford. Europe was heavily favored in both matches, but Pate sitting out automatically pushed Ballesteros to play Levy and placed an incredulous Guilford in the sidelines. Two likely U.S. losses became one. European players argued that if Pate could have played Saturday, he could have made it through another round on Sunday. Pate said he was in no condition to compete, barely being able to advance the ball 60 yards during his Sunday morning practice. The his-word-against-their-word game extended into on-course play as well. Around the 10th hole, the Friday morning foursomes match featuring the European team of Ballesteros and Jose Maria Olathebel, the American team of Paul Azinger and Chip Beck were accused of switching between 100 compression and 90 compression golf balls based on the wind conditions, an apparent breach of the rule that stated you had to play the same ball each hole. Ballesteros and Olathebel became incredulous when they were informed that violations on past holes could not be enforced retroactively. In their eyes, the Americans had gotten away with breaking the rules. Ballesteros and Olathebel flipped the momentum of the match from that point forward, winning by a 2-1 margin when Ballesteros made a 40-foot putt on the par 317th. Ballesteros, who was known as being an instigator himself, would later say, quote, the American team had 11 nice guys and Paul Azinger. The chippy back-and-forth nature of this Ryder Cup played out on the scoreboard as well. Buoyed by the team of Fred Couples and a 49-year-old Raymond Floyd, the Americans raced out to a 7.5 to 4.5 lead, with only the Saturday afternoon four-ball and Sunday singles remaining. Europe dominated the last four-ball session, however, punching back with three narrow victories and a half to secure an 8-8 tie heading into Sunday's final round. The Ocean Course took a significant toll on what was already an emotional event. The last day, players were winning matches with scores around 76 and 77, as lost balls continued to be collected on the copious sand dunes. Mind you, these were the best players in the game. Europe made an early push in the final day, as Nick Faldo edged Floyd, and rookie David Faraday defeated Stewart. Within all the tension, Stewart and Faraday had a humorous moment late in the match when Stewart, upon seeing Faraday being stopped by a marshal outside the ropes and struggling to get to the tee box, suddenly put his arm around his opponent. Stewart said, quote, Ma'am, I'd love you to hold him right here, but he's playing against me. Azinger defeated Olathebel 
an American Corey Pavin edged European Steven Richardson to not the score back at 10-10. Ballesteros easily handled Levy, but Beck upset then-world number one Ian Woosnam. The result couldn't have been more in question as the day went forward. Ultimately, the 1991 Ryder Cup was defined by two matches that were famously tied. The first was the match between Kalkovecchia of the U.S. and Colin Montgomery of Europe, the third match out of the day. Kalkovecchia took a commanding lead, going four up through 14 holes, a lead his teammates later said was an inspiring one to see on scoreboards throughout the property. However, Kalkovecchia came completely undone. It started on number 15 when he pushed his tee shot into the ocean and lost the hole. On the 16th, he airmailed the green and struggled to a double bogey, losing to Montgomery's bogey. What came next in the 17th is a part of Ryder Cup lore. Montgomery went first and hit his ball in the water, essentially meaning that any shot on dry land would have given Kalkovecchia the victory. Instead, his two iron barely got off the ground, ending in the middle of the lake. Famous analyst Johnny Miller called it the worst shot a professional golfer has ever hit. Announcer Charlie Jones stepped in immediately with the call of the event. Quote, are you kidding me? Kalkovecchia still just needed to have the hole to win the match, but he was a broken man at that point. Kalkovecchia missed a two-foot bogey putt to send the players to the 18th hole. Montgomery won again, claiming a half point that could have easily been a fatal blow for the Americans. TV commentator Roger Malpe was sent to get an interview from Kalkovecchia, but he found him in a television compound crying hysterically and experiencing a full mental breakdown. The other defining and ultimately decisive match came between Europe's Longer and American Hale Irwin. After Longer double bogeyed the 14th hole to fall two down to Irwin, he won the 15th with a par and then watched Irwin three-putt the 17th. If Longer won the last hole, the 14-14 tie would have retained the cup for Europe as it had two years earlier. It looked to be heading that way when Irwin snapped-hooked his drive well left of the fairway. But Irwin found his ball, which to this day may or may not have been thrown back into play by a spectator, something many Europeans claimed was happening throughout the week. Irwin was able to play a three-wood up short of the green. He failed to get up and down, leaving Longer the opportunity for par, which would mean a European victory. Longer ran his first putt six feet past, setting up the decisive moment. If he made it, Europe won. If he missed, they lost. The putt, a slight left-to-right breaker, had a spike mark about 10 inches in front of the ball, directly on the line he hoped to go over. So he played it straight and firm, avoiding the spike mark. Although Longer struggled with putting in his career, this wasn't an example of a poor putt under pressure. The putt just went by the low side of the hole, sending the crowd into a frenzy. Longer would later say, quote, I misread the putt because of those spike marks. If I had stood there shaking and yipped it either way, it would have been a different story, but it was not a bad putt. Ballesteros didn't blame Longer one bit. Quote, Nobody in the world would have made that putt under that pressure. Not even Jack Nicholas in his prime. I certainly wouldn't have hold it. It was too much for anyone. The aftermath had tears of pain and tears of relief. Stockton was thrown into the ocean during the celebration, creating the famous image of several U.S. players dunking their captain into the ocean. Maybe the war by the shore had gone too far in some respects. 
a battle too bloody for a good-natured game like golf. But there was no doubting that the event meant something new that had become a sporting spectacle beyond anything seen recently. Said Stockton, quote, It all came together. It changed the dynamics of the Ryder Cup, the competition of it, and what people thought of it. Prior to that point, the Ryder Cup, and to a certain extent golf itself, was viewed more as a chess match that lacked drama and less as a true sporting event. The 91 Ryder Cup changed that, and so did the ocean course where it was played. It's funny, the vast majority of the time a meaningful golf tournament is played, it's really the players and the competition itself that carries the weight and provides entertainment. Rarely does the course reach the level of being a primary storyline, although you could argue that places like Augusta, St. Andrews, and Pebble Beach would fit that bill. But that 91 Ryder Cup, it was all set up by a weird course that played such a crucial role in the environment of the match. And although the course has changed over the years to become maybe a little less weird, its history of how it was constructed and the legendary event that immediately came after is still remembered all these years later. Thank you for listening to this retrospective on Kiowa. If you want to check out a couple of our previous episodes, I I highly recommend our conversation about Bryson DeChambeau and Jordan Spieth. And of course, feel free to rate and subscribe to the Graph Podcast because that is very helpful for us to reach a wider audience. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Fairholm.